Hello and welcome to Opposition Cast and another week in British politics. I see you, you are a f***ing omni shambles, that's what you are. You're like that coffee machine, you know, from bean to cup, you f*** up. The delicate tones of Peter Capaldi there in his infamous role as Malcolm Tucker in the BBC series The Thick of It. And that splendid word, omnishambles, so caught the public imagination, at least in Westminster, that in 2012 it was named Word of the Year by the Oxford English Dictionary. And it's still used, even today, to describe a catalogue of government failures. And it was helped on its way to notoriety by the Labour leader of the opposition from 2010 to 2015, Ed Miliband, who deployed the phrase in a memorable exchange in the House of Commons when describing George Osborne's budget. Over the last month, we've seen the charity tax shambles, the churches tax shambles, the caravan tax shambles, and the pasty tax shambles. So, Mr Speaker, we're all keen to hear the Prime Minister's view as to why he thinks four weeks on from the budget, even people within Downing Street are calling it an omni-shambles budget. That exchange at Prime Minister's Questions on the 18th of April 2012 will probably quite rightly go down in history as one of the high points of the Ed Miliband leadership of the Labour Party. It's one of the jobs of the Leader of the Opposition to come up with a pithy phrase that will capture the public imagination and summarise their critique of the government of the day, as well as cheering up their backbenchers. Some leaders are better at the Prime Minister's Questions gig than others. William Hague was notoriously good at it and enjoyed it, but it didn't do him any good as he would be the first person to admit. Ed Miliband, it's generally agreed, never really shone in the Chamber of the House of Commons. But what about the other parts of the job? How did he do in the other aspects of leading the opposition? With the benefit of a few years of perspective and the intervening years of Jeremy Corbyn, we can perhaps start to revise our view of Ed Miliband as leader of the opposition. And joining us to do that, I'm very pleased to say that we've got another expert guest with us. Professor Tim Bale is Professor of Politics at Queen Mary, University of London, a fine institution uh, of which I am myself a graduate. He has written a number of books on British politics, including some on the Conservatives, the Conservative Party from Thatcher to Cameron, and the Conservatives since 1945. But the one that uh, I was particularly wanting to talk to him about was his book on the Labour Party under Ed Miliband, the title of which was Five Year Mission, a reflection of the view that some around Ed Miliband had that it might be possible for him to reverse Labour's uh, decline and to return to office after just five years from 2010. We know now that didn't come to pass. But how realistic was it to even consider doing that? I began by asking Tim just how big a challenge it was for Ed Miliband taking over the leadership of the opposition. I mean, it was pretty big. I think it's very easy to suggest that because the Conservatives didn't win the election of 2010, that therefore meant that Labour had a pretty good chance of coming back in five years um, was always uh, uh, too optimistic. Um, Labour 
had been quite badly beaten at that election. It's just that the Conservatives didn't actually do very well, partly actually because Labour's election machine managed to reduce uh, the seat loss that many people would have predicted given the percentage of the vote that Labour actually got. So Miliband was facing a heck of a task, not just on the numbers, uh, whether we're talking seats or vote share, but also in some of the underlying uh, factors in that defeat. And in particular, I think Labour's loss of its very, very valuable reputation as the party most trusted to handle the economy. That was something that uh, Labour had managed to wrest from the Conservatives after Black Wednesday back uh, in the early 90s. And having gone through really unprecedented economic good times during you know, the late 1990s and early 2000s had really established itself as you know, the best party on the economy, um, which I think is probably difficult for people to imagine or even remember now. Um, but the loss of that reputation because of the global financial crisis, fairly or unfairly, uh, in 2007-8, really meant that uh, Labour and Ed Miliband was facing a very, very difficult you know, period in, in which to, to try and turn this thing around in just five years. And that was actually the title of um, the book you wrote on, on the Labour Party under Miliband was this five-year mission. I remember speaking to, to Neil Kinnock when he said that he, he knew, at least privately, when he took over in the 80s, that it was going to be, as he called it, a two-match innings, mm. um, that it would take uh, two elections to do that. But Miliband genuinely thought that it was possible to do within five years and that the, the whole strategy was, was geared towards that. Um, was, was that ever realistic, do you think? I mean, having said it was difficult, I don't think it was utterly impossible, partly because of the weaknesses of the Liberal Democrats and indeed the Conservatives at that time. The Conservatives clearly were quite divided uh, on Europe. And that meant on occasion they took their eye off uh, other balls in play, if you like. Um, the Liberal Democrats were clearly in some ways out for the count after uh, their decision to go into coalition with the Conservatives. So there was room perhaps on both sides uh, for Labour to make some gains. And on the Conservative side, of course, this was a government that was not only pursuing uh, an unpopular austerity policy, a policy which actually had tangible effects on quite a lot of people's lives, particularly women's lives actually, but a Conservative government that was also in effect by its policies helping to suppress uh, real wages. Uh, so you know, if you put those two things together, major cuts in public services and real wages that weren't uh, rising and in some cases were actually falling, then uh, the economic news for the government wasn't uh, ideal and therefore it may have been possible for an opposition to, to capitalise on that. So difficult but not impossible, I think. And you mentioned the sort of the big issue of economic competence. Very early on, the Conservatives made a concerted effort to pin the blame on the Labour Party and to, uh, to instil a narrative that it was all the fault of the Labour party um, and their mismanagement. There was a lot of tension from there on between Miliband and Ed Balls as his shadow chancellor about the extent to which they should concede and the amount uh, of 
of blame that they should concede in order to move on. Was that ever really properly resolved? No, I think you put your finger on a major problem for the Labour Party after 2010. There was a reluctance on the part of Miliband, I think, to defend the Blair Brown era. Uh, and that meant that he was reluctant uh, to go into bat for it. It was also the case, of course, that Ed Balls, uh, who eventually became uh, the shadow chancellor, he wasn't the first pick, but uh, he, he eventually got that job, was in a difficult situation himself because, A, he clearly been, you know, Gordon Brown's right-hand man in some ways and therefore felt a, a kind of degree of loyalty to, to the new Labour project in, in that sense. But Balls was also, I think, and this was true of him throughout the new Labour years, very much one of these people who believed that Labour had to maintain its credibility on the economy and if that meant not exactly a reversion to kind of orthodox economics but at least um, not a kind of wild swing to a more if you like Keynesian approach then so be it. Uh, so in both Brown, in, in both uh, Balls and Miliband I think you had uh, people who were kind of cross pressured on, on the economy and, and on the question of the responsibility of Labour for where the economy had got to. But I do think it's incredibly important to stress, as you did in your question actually, that the Conservatives played an absolute blinder when it came to the messaging uh, once they got into office. I mean, they were very, very successful, I think, in, in pinning the blame for the problems of the economy and indeed for austerity on the Labour Party. Uh, George Osborne had these you know, fantastically memorable phrases about Labour failing to fix the roof while the sun was shining, uh, Labour having maxed out uh, the nation's credit card, uh, that really brought it home to people. And I think you'd have to say those kinds of messages were every bit as successful as the kind of household economics that Mrs Thatcher, if you like, specialised in rhetorically when she was leader of the Conservative Party. So, you know, in electoral terms anyway, all credit to, to George Osborne for doing that. And that perhaps highlights one of the general problems that an opposition has in the, the fact that it has to make its impact early in order to fix its impression on, on, on the, the electorate. And I think it's probably also the case that as well as on economic competence that Ed Miliband himself personally as a, a leader didn't manage to secure himself as a prime ministerial candidate early on and that having failed to do that he, he struggled. How much of the, the problems that, uh, that they faced were uh, attributable to, to Miliband himself as, as leader? Well there are two parts to that question. The first part is just the general public perception uh, of Ed Miliband and the second part is clearly you know, the substance if you like of Ed Miliband's leadership and on the first one clearly he started off at a major disadvantage in the sense that he was widely seen as a kind of illegitimate leader by many on the right of the Labour Party having beaten uh, his brother with uh, the help of the trade unions as, as many saw it uh, and Again, the Conservatives actually were very effective at um, using that narrative uh, against him. So, you know, he started off with a, a disadvantage. 
to be honest, he was also someone I think that the public found difficult to, to warm to and difficult to imagine uh, as Prime Minister. Now, quite why that was the case is a little bit more difficult to understand, perhaps, given that he had governmental experience. He's clearly, you know, a bright guy, um, pretty eloquent, and yet perhaps, you know, as some people suggested, you know, it was just the way he looked or just the way he talked. But for whatever reason, uh, the public just didn't really want to him and didn't really take him seriously. Now, that, of course, was not only an impression that was uh, rammed home by the Conservative government, but also rammed home, of course, by the, the party in the media, um, the Conservative supporting press, which... Uh, really didn't give him uh, any quarter at all. I mean, if you look at the kind of press handling of Ed Miliband from the leadership contest right the way through to him losing the election, it was unsparingly negative. I mean, you know, you can count on the, the fingers of one hand, you know, the um, times he got positive uh, media coverage and, and many, many times it was extremely negative. So I'm not one who necessarily believes that, you know, you can explain everything by what the newspapers say about someone, but it certainly didn't help. And nor did it help, of course, that uh, many of his colleagues um, were unsure that he was really up to the job. And however much they might have explicitly supported him, in media interviews um, and even you know off the record um, chats with journalists I think it was pretty clear to many people that there were some people on his own side who didn't really believe that um, he could he could do it so I think in terms of the public perception he was he was always in trouble if you look at the polling I mean the only thing he consistently had a lead on, over David Cameron was being in touch with ordinary people but that's something that to be honest, Labour leaders normally uh, manage to have an advantage over. So in terms of public perception, he was always struggling. In terms of his actual leadership and the, the substance of that, I mean, you can talk about that in so many ways. Did he make the right uh, appointments to his shadow cabinet? And one thing he did do, of course, was actually decide that he was going to dispense with shadow cabinet elections. So the people he had around him were people that he himself picked so if he did get it wrong, it was to some extent his own fault, um, you could say. Then there's the question of, you know, the, the, the whole policy response. You know, did he get that right? Uh, did he veer too far left or, or did he not go far enough in, in that sense? You know, you, you can criticise him, I guess, on the substance as well as the perception. And one of the things that you tried to do in, in that paper in uh, 2015 was to sort of come up with a, a framework for evaluating leaders of the opposition. Without, without putting you too much on the spot to kind of remember exactly what those criteria were, what are the main things that a leader of the opposition really has to, to do to, to, to be a success in the job? Because it's not just winning the election, is it, really? I mean, that's obviously the, the aim, but in terms of how we rate leaders of the opposition, regardless of whether they win or not, there are different criteria we can use to assess whether they're any good at it. Yeah, I mean, I don't have the criteria in front of me and no doubt it should really be burned onto my brain, but uh, so much has happened, as you've said. <laughs> but obviously the first thing uh, that leaders need to do is to convey the impression that the party has changed uh, and that might involve uh, new personnel. It might involve uh, a new set of policies. 
Uh, and that is, in fact, one of the most difficult things, I think, for any leader to, to manage to, to convey. And that's probably the most important. It's, it's the, the idea that, you know, we're not the same parties we used to be. We've made mistakes. We understand what those mistakes are. We're going to put them right. We are putting them right. I picked different people. I'm going off in a slightly new policy direction. So unless you can do that, I think you're in trouble. So, uh, you know, that really sums up, I guess, all the criteria. It's the, the ability to convey uh, change convincingly. Um, but you've also, of course, got to do that. Uh, and that's where the word convincingly comes, comes in. You've got to do it in such a way as people actually believe that not only are you changing, but that you are still a kind of alternative government in waiting, really. And this is another one of the criteria. Not only are you able to show sort of sufficient fleetness of foot to take advantage of the problems of the government, but that you, you know, could at any point, you know, be parachuted into Downing Street and do the job credibly and, and successfully. And again, I think, you know, that was one of the difficulties that uh, that Ban, uh had. It wasn't simply. Uh, that people weren't sure that Labour had changed enough uh, and in which direction they were changing. But it was also, and this comes back perhaps to some of his personal characteristics, the failure to persuade people that, you know, at the flick of a switch, Labour could actually do the job of governing the country. And one of the other things that you mentioned in, in that paper and identify is the difference between policy approaches and, and you term them as being impressionistic versus um, pointillistic, uh, using sort of an artistic metaphor. The one I tend to use is, is the Churchill one about lighthouse versus shop window. But um, do you want to say a bit more about what the difference is between those two artistic styles and, and whether, whether one is better than the other or whether it is just uh, a case of, you know, I don't know much about politics, but I know what I like. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the sort of pointillistic style is really, I guess, to convey an overall impression of uh, what the party is offering and how it's changed by changing individual policies or coming up with individual policies across uh, the piece so that when one steps back from the painting, as it were, one can see uh, exactly uh, what the party in general stands for. Um, the more kind of broad brush style, if you like, is simply to come up with you know one or two headlines a message if you like into which individual policies uh fit or in fact which precludes the need for too much detailed policy and that's where the the churchill quotation comes in uh you know do you just as it were suggest to people what you're doing in a, in a kind of you know broad brush um thematic way or do you try and convince them by, instead of that lighthouse approach, having a shop window where they can you know, look at this policy, look at that policy, look at another policy, put them all together and say, you know, well, the Labour Party now is, is the sum of these parts. As to which one is more successful? I mean, I, I think that rather depends, to be honest. I mean, I think probably the pointillistic, if you like, um, strategy the the shop window strategy is more risky in the sense that it does mean that you have to come up with a whole bunch of convincing policies across the piece and that can be quite difficult in in opposition and of course it does give the government the opportunity to tear into those individual policies the broad brush approach i guess is slightly less risky 
on the other hand, it does mean that whatever theme you have to come up with really must resonate uh, with what people at the time actually want. So in other words, you have to convince them that the election is about the question that you want answered and that you have the best answer to that question. Uh, and if you don't come up with that, then you're, you're stuck because you haven't really got much else that you can offer them. And of course, most of the focus after the event is on the things that have gone wrong and uh, criticising the, um, the things that Labour had done badly. But on, on various measures, and uh, we, can, we can look across the five years at, at moments at which Ed Miliband was seen as being a, a more successful leader. Um, what do you think were his biggest successes? What do you think are the things that he, he did particularly well during that period? Well, I mean, he did occasionally have quite an effective turn of phrase. One can think back to the 2012 um, budget uh, of George Osborne when it was Miliband who um, coined the term, although he was borrowing it, obviously the Omnishambles budget. Now, clearly, George Osborne you know, didn't come up with a great budget, but I think Miliband was incredibly effective in his response to that. And given that one of the key tasks of opposition is to undermine the government's economic credibility, I think you know, there was an example where he was doing his job extremely effectively. You can argue that on the uh, Leveson point, um, Ed Miliband actually performed very effectively there as well, helping to you know, pin uh, David Cameron down uh, on uh, you know, the Conservative Party's links with the media, uh, which at that time was pretty unpopular among most people. Uh, you can argue that he actually took on some pretty good people around him. If you think of the staff uh, that he had and some of his advisors, they were some very effective operators, um, especially when it came to kind of public opinion polling, etc. People like James Morris or, or uh, Greg Beals or Marcus Roberts, people like that. You know, they, he had some good people uh, around him. So, I mean, I think there, there were things that he, he did pretty well. It's just that he never really managed to you know, wrest back the mantle of economic competence uh, from a government, which in some ways was quite vulnerable on that. And of course, perhaps on the uh, failure side, we, we, we can perhaps also add what happened next to an extent, um, perhaps unintentionally, but there were a lot of changes that were made structurally to the Labour Party, which had a, a sort of unexpected impact later on with the election of, of Jeremy Corbyn. Do, do you think that, that he bears a heavy responsibility for that? Clearly, some of these things probably weren't intentional, but, but you can look back, as you mentioned just now, about the Shadow Cabinet elections. I mean, if, if the Shadow Cabinet um, elections had continued to take place, I think Jeremy Corbyn would have been in a very different and much more difficult position um, as leader. So how much culpability does Ed Miliband have for, for the Corbyn years? Well, I mean, first and foremost, obviously, was the decision to change the way that Labour elected its leader, and in particular to change the, the franchise, if you like, for uh, the election. Ed Miliband was always very sensitive about the role that the trade unions had played in his own election. So when the Falkirk episode occurred and trade unions you know, got themselves into trouble over you know, supposedly interfering uh, in that selection contest, um, Labour under Ed Miliband grabbed the chance to change the way that the leader was elected and, and uh, abandoned the electoral 
uh, college for a, a kind of one member, uh, one vote system, something that was always favoured, funnily enough, by the right of the Labour Party rather than the left. Uh, and that had massive consequences because it was that uh, that helped Jeremy Corbyn win so successfully, partly uh, by uh, an influx of new members and registered supporters uh, into the electorate after um, 2015. So he, he's responsible in, in that sense. But of course, it was an unintended consequence. And actually, there was a safeguard there, it should be stressed, which was that the um, candidates for the leadership still needed to be nominated by a fairly healthy percentage of Labour MPs. And one can argue that had Labour MPs done that gatekeeping job properly, um, then Jeremy Corbyn would have come nowhere near even being able to enter that contest in 2015. But it was only the fact that some Labour MPs and some actually quite you know, centrist uh, Labour MPs felt that it would be useful to have a left-wing candidate um, that they didn't perform that gatekeeping function and therefore Jeremy Corbyn was, uh, was allowed into the contest. Now, when that happened, I think something else that Ed Miliband did helped Jeremy Corbyn, uh, and that was really to frustrate the left. Many people thought that Ed Miliband would take the Labour Party further to the left than he did uh, after 2010, and in not doing so, he therefore, I think, frustrated a lot of members who by 2015, having lost that election, if they had the chance, they were going to elect someone who really was going to do what they uh, had wanted Miliband to do, and was certainly not going to get into, for example, the whole tough on immigration stance that so upset many Labour members. Uh, some people uh, listening might remember the immigration control mugs uh, that Labour put out under Ed Miliband, and you still see those referred to today, actually, occasionally on Twitter. Um, that kind of thing, and a failure, I think, to condemn austerity as convincingly as many Labour Party members wanted, I think that helped Jeremy Corbyn get elected, as well as the institutional changes that you mentioned. Of course, Ed Miliband is now back. Um, he's now back in the Shadow Cabinet, um, serving um, Keir Starmer. There haven't been a, a lot of leaders who've, who've come back. I think the, the last one was um, William Hay came back into uh, David Cameron's shadow cabinet. And uh, I think we can think back to um, Alec Douglas Hume returning to, to serve Ted Heath. But I, I would imagine there's probably going to be quite a few conversations behind closed doors between the two of them, or perhaps over Zoom, about sort of how uh, Keir Starmer is going to approach the job and perhaps learning some of the lessons that Ed Miliband learnt the hard way. What do you think is going to be the, the most useful lesson that Keir Starmer can, can take from, from Ed Miliband, both in terms of his mistakes, but also the things that he will, will have, have learnt on the job as being things that were successful? You mentioned some of those things. And is, is the sort of the Miliband experience one which he should in some way seek to emulate? Because you could argue perhaps that um, Jeremy Corbyn was an interlude that put, set the Labour Party back a long way. And they're now back in the situation perhaps they were in, in 2010 and have now got to go through that period again. So is he now in the same position Ed Miliband was in in 2010 or is he facing a much more difficult position and what could he learn from Miliband? Well, he is facing a much more difficult position in the sense that he's facing a Conservative Party with an 80 plus seat majority rather than the Conservative Party that actually failed to win a majority. So clearly in those terms, it is a much more difficult um, situation. 
Um, I mean, I think in some ways, Jeremy Corbyn, and it might surprise some people to hear me say this, did the Labour Party a favour by not immediately resigning. Because it did, I think, give those people who were standing for the leadership uh, quite a long run in uh, and therefore uh, actually gave them a chance not only to conduct a kind of post-mortem of their own, but for the party more generally to conduct uh, a post-mortem. Uh, and I think that is quite important for oppositions to actually understand why they lost the election, even though that's always going to be contested, does help uh, whoever becomes the leader, not least actually because it convinces ordinary members of the need for change. And I think perhaps one of the problems that Ed Miliband encountered was that you know he won this leadership contest fairly quickly before there was time to conduct any kind of post-mortem. Uh, he won it in some ways quite unexpectedly, so it's not the case that, I, and I think it was the case to be honest for Keir Starmer, just as it was to some extent for David Cameron, that he could kind of hit the ground running soon after taking over. So I think I think Keir Starmer does have some advantages over uh, Ed Miliband. I think if you know we're we're thinking about um, you know what Ed Miliband could could say to <laughs> Keir Starmer in, in terms of you know the the, the do's and don'ts. I think it's probably about clear messaging right from the start. Ed Miliband, you know, was always, I think, reluctant to talk about needing to, you know, camp on the centre ground, was, I think, quite, you know, concerned to, to try and to push the Labour Party in the country to some extent to, to the left, which, to be honest, in Britain's first-past-the-post system is probably not the, the way to go. And I think you know, whether a Labour leader means it or not, I think Labour leaders need to convince the public anyway that they're um, taking the party towards the centre rather than uh, to to the left. It's very interesting, I think, when you look back at the new Labour years, particularly the new Labour years in opposition under Blair and Brown, they very much gave this impression that it was a, a party moving to the centre. You know, Tony Blair was able to convince the public that he was taking the Labour Party back to the centre. So I think that um, that is quite uh, important. Um, I also think that Ed Miliband might say to Keir Starmer, uh, if you are going to do things uh, to get yourself noticed, you have to make sure that there's actually something behind them. And a good example of this would be Ed Miliband's use of this phrase, One Nation. Uh, you know, he, he used this phrase very effectively in a conference speech uh, you know, to give the idea that the Tories had veered all the way off to the right. That was very effective, actually, for a few weeks until it became very apparent to journalists and then to the public that there was nothing really behind that phrase. Uh, so if you're going to go for those kind of ex uh, attention grabbing initiatives, you have to make sure that there is actually something substantial behind them. Otherwise, I think you end up not exactly embarrassing yourself, but not being able to press home the advantage. Great. Tim, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks a lot. Professor Tim Bale of Queen Mary University of London there. And you can follow Tim on Twitter at Prof Tim Bale, where he occasionally will use the hashtag Omnishambles, uh, particularly in the last week, I've noticed. I'll be back in about another two weeks with another episode of Opposition Cast, unless I've been downgraded by an algorithm. But in the meantime, thanks for joining me, look after yourselves, 
and I'll see you soon. Opposition Cast is produced by the Centre for Opposition Studies. You can follow us at Facebook at Opposition Studies, Twitter at Opposition UK, and online at oppositionstudies.net. Omni shambles, that's what you are.